morning, everyone. Uh, I want you to uh, imagine the scene. It's, it's Sunday morning, and you uh, walk into church, and someone says to you, Hi, how are you doing? Well, the, uh, the standard answer or the immediate answer is, uh, I'm fine, how are you? But what if you replied, Well, I'm absolutely awful, I'm spiritually dry, I'm totally confused, I feel like I'm going under, I'm so disheartened and discouraged that it's frightening. But look, thanks for asking. How would you think the other person would react if you said that to them? Well, if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to uh, Psalm 42? Last Sunday morning, we, we started this new summer series called Alternative iTunes. And the first song on our playlist was Psalm 16, which is a trust psalm. But today, we're going to listen to a very different type of psalm. It's a psalm of individual lament. And it's a psalm written by one of the sons of Korah. And if he happened to walk into Windsor Baptist this morning, and if you were to ask him, how are you? Well, then he probably would have offered you a similar answer to the one I just suggested. Laments are cries for help. Deep, personal cries for help. And Psalm 42 has been described as a howl of despair. And I love it. And the reason I love it and the reason it's one of my favourite psalms is because it's so real. And it's so honest. And it's so raw. That I will guarantee you that it's going to connect with some people this morning. For all sorts of reasons. And the psalmist writes this prayer to lament the fact that God doesn't feel particularly close. And I don't know how you feel this morning, whether it seems that God isn't particularly nearby. What is really important about this psalm is that here is a psalmist still praying to a seemingly remote God. God may appear distant. God may even seem absent from his life. But this writer has concluded that there still is a God. And he has not decided to adopt a position of agnosticism or atheism. Because that is really vital to note when it comes to the Psalms. Because the Psalms contain some, or the Psalms of Lament in particular, contain some very disturbingly dark language. But even in the midst of that, the psalmist still retains a belief and a faith in God. And so what we're about to read, and we're going to stand to read these words in a moment, but what we're about to read together are not the words of a hacked-off Christian. I need to say that. They're not the words of someone ranting irreverently at God. But instead, these are profound, deep, and thoughtful words that have so much to teach us. And therefore, I find this psalm, in fact, these next two psalms, incredibly challenging. And we are actually going to read Psalm 42 and 43 because it is the general consensus consensus that they are one psalm. They're not two separate psalms. If you have a wee look at Psalm 43, you'll notice that there's no title. 
This is one of the only Psalms that has that as its feature. There's no title to it. And also you will see that verse 5 of of Psalm 42, verse 11 of Psalm 42, and verse uh, 5 of Psalm 43 are exactly the same. Repeated three times. Therefore, there is a sense in which this is just one psalm. So let's uh, stand together for the public reading of God's word. Let's listen to this individual lament, this howl of despair. And incidentally, if you were going to play a piece of music, probably the blues would, would be the best piece of music to play in the background here. Okay, so let's listen. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are my God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful prayer. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. Please take your seats. And as you read those words or as you listen to that song, you can't help but sense the despair. And what I want you to notice is that this level of despair impacts the psalmist's entire being. He is not in a good place. He's not in a good place spiritually. He's not in a good place emotionally. And he's not even in a good place physically. So it seems like God's a million miles away. And so he cries out in verse 2, where can I go to meet God? I just don't sense God. I just don't feel God. So where can I go to meet with him? And in addition, and we've all had this experience, people keep saying to him, where is your God? 
I hear what you say about your God, but where is your God? And we've all been there, and people have said that to us. And it seems that the psalmist at one level has got no answer for them. And that's a hard place to be. When everybody around you is asking you, where is your God in this? And the intensity of this spiritually bleak experience is tangible. And therefore he writes those strong and those explicit words that he repeats three times. He says, my soul is downcast. It's so disturbed within me. This has taken its toll on this guy emotionally. But in addition, have a look at the physical impact it's having on his life. For a start, it's affecting his appetite. He can't even face food. So in verse 3 it says, Do you know, the only thing I can eat are the very salt of my tears. And it's got to such a level that if you look at verse 10, his bones ache. This is affecting this guy at a very deep level. And what we encounter here is a God-believing psalmist who's struggling. And I don't know if you're struggling this morning. And it's not just somebody having a bad day. It's not just somebody that's got out of the wrong side of the bed. This goes much deeper. And if nothing, nothing else, this psalm confirms the fact to me that Christians get disillusioned. And let me be honest, I get disillusioned. Christians can despair. Christians can go through what someone has described as the dark night of the soul. But what this psalm of lament teaches us is, listen, don't hide it. Don't repress your despair. Don't cause it to sink deeper. Don't cause it to intensify. Instead, what you've got to do is you've got to express it. You've got to articulate it. You've got to get it out there, which is, exact, which is exactly what the son of Korah did using these amazing and these insightful words. And one of the lessons that we learn from this is the importance of not bottling up your feelings, of not trying to hide what's going on behind the mask, what's going on under the surface, even though, let's be honest, we're good at that. And particularly in a church context where we're reluctant to let the guard down. We're reluctant to say how we really feel. And that's because we think, you know, people won't understand me. People won't be able to relate to me. Or maybe we even feel it's morally wrong to be this down as a Christian. And I know that we need to be appropriate and I know that we need to be wise. But we also need to be real. Because God is big enough to deal with our brutal honesty and to hear our lament. And so what Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 do is they provide us with a glimpse into the inner life of a Christian who is in spiritual, emotional and physical turmoil. But thankfully, and what's absolutely critical, because if, if that's all I was going to say this morning, it would, it would leave us in a very bleak place. But thankfully and critically, these two psalms also offer us a perspective and help in dealing with and how we should respond to this sort of experience. Because many of us are there. Many of us have been there. Many of us will be there. And we need to know, how do I respond when I'm in this place? And one of the key things that you are struck by as you read this psalm is the amount of questions that the psalmist has. 
Have a look at these with me. Verse 2. Where can I go to meet with God? Question. Verse 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Question mark. He repeats it, as I say, in verse 11 and 5 of 43. Why are you so disturbed within me? Question mark. Verse 5, repeated in 11, 5 of 43. Verse 9, why have you forgotten me, God? Verse 9 again, why must I go about mourning, oppressed by my enemy? And then those harrowing, or that harrowing question in verse 2 of 43. Why have you rejected me, God? Do you ever feel, and I've covered some of this before, but do you ever feel that you've got more questions than answers? Well, that's okay. It seems according to this psalm that God can cope with questions. Whenever I, uh, whenever I visited Windsor back in March 2008, I referred to this song by Martin Joseph. A song that I came across in the 1990s and it's a song that I have learned to value so much in my, in my own journey. Locked in my heart there's a child knocking the door to get out, asking the questions that hurt And sometimes it's a question of doubt. And I can't pretend that it's easy. And I can't pretend that I win. When your search in this life is over, well, that's when the struggle begins. And if I don't find out, well, the search is not in vain. And if I don't find out, and I hold on, and I treasure the questions as they rage in my mind. I treasure the questions, and someday I will find that I've run out of answers such a long time ago and I treasure the questions wherever I go and you know we all have questions and questions aren't a sign of weakness they're not even a sign of a lack of faith the Bible is full of people who ask questions even one of the last things that Jesus said before he died was a question my God, my God why have you forsaken me? so take your questions to God. Express them as the psalmist did. Get them out there. Questions should be treasured. And that's because, in the words of this Jewish proverb, questions are the beginning of knowledge. You see, questions have got the potential to take you on a journey of discovery. Kids love questions. Just as an aside, on, uh, on Wednesday, whenever I was preparing for this, Kristen came walking into the room with this t-shirt on and I just loved the irony so I had to take a picture of it. But you know, my girls, my three girls, love to ask questions and particularly Kristen, Dad, why? Dad, what about? Dad, why can't? Dad, what if? If I'm honest, it drives me up the walls at times. Uh, but what I found is that the older you get, the more reluctant you seem to be to ask questions. And even though, if we're honest, we actually have more questions about more issues. But the thing is, we, it's not that we stop asking questions, it's just we stop asking them out loud. And so we hang on to them. And so we suppress them. And we don't ask them out loud because we're afraid that if we ask some of the questions that we carry around with us out loud, well then people might judge us. People might actually misunderstand us. Or we could get embarrassed by the questions that we carry. Treasure the questions. And if we break this uh, psalm down, 
it appears to divide into three sections that sort of capture the psalmist's feeling. Have a look with me at verses 1 to 5. Because what you really do sense here is his level of spiritual dryness. And the picture that he uses is of a deer. A deer that is consumed by thirst. Its throat is dry and it's longing to find refreshment from streams of water. And this is a graphic picture that he's painting of how he feels. It's how he feels spiritually. He's parched. His throat's really dry spiritually. And he longs to be revived. And he longs to be rejuvenated. And we'll come to that in a moment. Verses 6 to 11 then reveal his sense of drowning. He's overwhelmed. He's going under. And if you look at verse 7, these stunning poetic words, he says, Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. I love this. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. And this psalmist is fighting for survival. He's pummeled by cascading water and huge ocean waves and he's struggling for breath and he's gasping for life and he's unsure if he's going to make it. He's unsure if he's going to survive. And that is how some people feel whenever they are suffering from this level of despair. They feel, you know, I'm sinking here. My spiritual life is ebbing away from me. It's slipping away from me. And finally in verses 1 to 5 of 43, it reveals just how disheartened he is. Because he's now being misjudged by others. Not only is he misjudged by others, but people are against him and he's oppressed. And to top it all, it even feels like God has rejected him. And whenever you get to that place, whenever you lose heart to that extent, whenever it seems like everybody else is out to get you, then you're left to feel vulnerable, you're left to feel alone, and that's a very difficult place to be. And so he's dry, and he's drowning, and he's disheartened. So what else does he do? In addition to asking questions. Well what's really really interesting is that the psalmist isn't looking for answers. He's not looking for a solution. He's not even looking for a way out. His key desire. And this fascinates me. His key desire is God. His soul craves God. He thirsts for the living God. And he longs to meet with God. This may be a Christian in deep despair. But he doesn't blame God for his despair. See, that's my position sometimes. I look to blame someone, and sometimes that someone is God. This is a psalmist who doesn't blame God. He doesn't voice off disrespectfully. He doesn't turn his back on God. In fact, in his despairing, depressed, dry, drowning, disheartened state, he desires God over and above everything else and anyone else. And notice the striking intensity of this dry and drowning and disheartened state. It's like longing for a cool drink in a burning hot desert. Now if you're here this morning and you can identify with so many of the feelings that this psalmist expresses. You feel dry. And you feel as if you're going under. And you feel rather down. Please note where he goes. Please note his hunger and his thirst for God. He's not going to walk away from God. He's not going to turn in other directions. He's not going to look for other coping mechanisms. He's driven to his God. 
The psalmist knows that in his restless state, there's only one place to go. And time and time again, I refer to this. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And the psalmist knew this. And so, like the deer crashing through the desert wastelands, hunting for water that can keep it alive, this psalmist knows the only thing that's going to keep me alive is God. And the writer of Psalm 63 echoes this desire because he says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And as I was just working my way through this, I realized that as I was going to stand up here in church this morning, there would be people who are currently despairing. And maybe for want of a better phrase, feel that they're in a place that could be best described as spiritual depression. But all I can say to you is in the midst of such experiences, never lose your thirst for God. Never lose that hunger for the living God. And the psalmist was able to maintain that. And he yearned God and he craved God. But also note that he recognized the importance of memory. Look at verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. And what he goes on to do is he reflects that he used to be in a better place. He used to go with others to the house of God. He used to sing his heart out. He used to shout off to his God in praise. And I know that living in the past can be a dangerous thing. But there is real definite value in reflection. In looking back. And whenever you experience the dark night of the soul, it's good to recall brighter days. It's good to bring to mind happier experiences. And for this son of Korah, the simple act of remembering transforms this alternative eye tune from an ode to despair into a statement of bold hope and faith. Do you know, as individual Christians, I'm sure you can remember better days. I certainly can. You can recall... Moments in your personal faith journey when there were tangible answers to prayer. You can remember those times. You can remember that you were so aware of God speaking not only to you but through you. It's maybe not where you're at today, but you can recall that time. You can remember how God's word used to be so alive to you. And when you opened it, it just seemed to leap off the page, whereas now... You struggle to even open it. Or maybe you can recall going on a summer team or a short-term service project like so many people are on at the moment. And you can remember those experiences and you remember seeing God working in your life and in the lives of others as you shared your faith and as you shared your life with them. And so you recall those better days. But it's not just individual memories that we cling to. Do you know, as the body of Christ, we cling to our collective memory. We've got to do that. As the people of God, we've got to recall our story. We've got to recall God's story. And nowhere is that process of recall more concrete and tangible than it is at the Lord's table. Whenever we have an opportunity as the body of Christ to remember Jesus. And even this morning, if you find yourself in a difficult place... 
then as we eat and as we drink in a moment, I invite you to remember and to reflect. And as you remember and as you reflect, despite how you feel right now, but as you remember and as you reflect on Jesus, that that renews and transforms your perspective. So please, whenever Nigel comes in a moment to lead us in communion, embrace the opportunity to remember. But you'll notice then that the psalmist not only remembers, but he recognizes the necessity of hope. And he declares that there is no other resting place for his hope than God alone. Look at the end of that refrain that I've said appears three times. Why am I so you downcast? Why so disturbed within you? But look at the next phrase. Put your hope in God. And Nigel's already referred to this. And David in Psalm 39 reaches a similar place where he sings, But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Hope in life. Hope in life is, in, is a general requirement, actually. But hope in God is a necessity. And then comes that quite incredible phrase in verses 5.11 and 5.43. For I will yet praise him. Because surely the last thing you feel like doing whenever you're not in a good place is praising God. It's maybe the last thing you feel like doing this morning. Whenever your level of despair reaches a certain place, you think, the last thing I want to do is praise God. And yet, somehow, this psalmist, because of what he remembers, because his hope is in God, he says, listen, I'm going to yet praise my God. Even in my turmoil, even in my darkness, I'm going to affirm God. I'm going to worship him. And look at how he refers to his God in this psalm. He says in verse 4 of 42, God, you are the mighty one. In verse 5, God, you are my saviour. In verse 9, God, you are my rock. In verse 2 of 43, God, you are my stronghold. In verse 4 of 43, God, you are my joy. You are my delight. And I know for some people here this morning, the idea of praising God in light of how you feel is a bridge too far. But yet, God, despite how I feel this morning, it's not about me. It's not about how I feel. It's not about my problems, my issues. It's all about you, God. And you are my mighty one, and you are my saviour, and you are my rock, and you are my strong, and you are my joy, you are my delight. Or last week, as we sang together, you are my protector, you are my refuge, you are my master, you are my provider, you are my inheritance, you are my counsellor, you are my focus, you are my hope, you are my life. I will yet Praise him. And it's going to be a sacrifice to do that. And the minute that we lose this perspective of God is the minute we need to pack up and forget this. Because the psalmist felt totally horrendous. But he never lost his respect, his reverence and his recognition. And he had lots of questions and he had lots of doubts and he had lots of frustrations. And I have them this morning. And a lot of angst. But in the context of it all, God, you're still God and I'm going to praise you. And this psalmist felt distant and God felt remote. 
But in these two psalms, we've got permission to do two things. I'm going to lament the darkness, but I'm going to hold on to a vision of the light. And Delirious sing a song called Obsession, and it includes these lyrics. Sometimes you're further than the moon. Sometimes you're closer than my skin. And you surround me like a winter fog. And you've come and you've burned me with a kiss. And my heart burns for you. My heart burns for you. Apparently it would take you 2,000 years to walk to the moon. And for some of you here this morning, that's how far God feels away. But can I assure you that God's closer than your skin? And my prayer for us as a church, in the midst of everything, is that our hearts will burn for God. That our souls will thirst for him. However we feel this morning.